Hello and welcome to Kiss My Black Side with me, Brenda Imanis. This is a celebratory look at art from a black perspective. In this show, we talk to some brilliantly talented creatives who have made their mark in the world of dance, film, fashion, music, theatre and the visual arts. We discuss their work and inspiration, and then we get to do a little deep dive on issues related to their specific art form. And as we're talking, we figured it would be nice to end each programme with a specially commissioned spoken word tribute to our chosen topic, which in this episode is dance. This podcast is produced by Free Spirit Productions Limited and brought to you by Sadler's Wells. Sadler's Wells is one of the world's leading dance organisations and in 2022, they're celebrating work by black dance artists with Well Seasoned, a year-long programme of live performances, dance films and more from black choreographers, dancers and artists of colour. My guest for this episode of Kiss My Black Side includes Sadler's Wells' associate artist and founder of the amazing international festival of hip-hop dance theatre, Breaking Convention. He's a choreographer, dancer, producer and all-round nice guy, John Z. D. And I'm also joined by an incredible talent who I find as addictive to watch as some people find ASMR to listen to. She's a world-class ballet dancer from Michigan who has spent the last eight years in the UK dancing for English National Ballet. Her name, Precious Adams. And our final and equally awesome guest is currently the fourth principal of the Northern School of Contemporary Dance. Prior to this, she was the longest-standing artistic director of Phoenix Dance Theatre. Welcome, Sharon Watson, MBE. Thank you very much for joining me. I feel truly honoured to have you all here. How are we? Hi. Precious, I would love to start with you because I'm in a free little girl's dream when it is to be a ballet dancer, but then reality bites. I know it certainly did for me. <laughs> I just didn't have the talent. But why ballet for you over any other dance form? Um, it might sound cliche, but I really think it was perhaps like my life's calling. Um, I've been obsessed with ballet since I was about eight years old and when I say obsessed I mean like very obsessed I would just go to the library and rent every book and every dvd um it was what I wanted to spend all of my time doing like living breathing sleeping um since I was around eight or nine years old um (laughs) but I think I think with um anything you choose to do in life it you have to pick something that you're just incredibly passionate about. Um, so for me, it just happened to be dance above anything else. Like nothing else has ever sparked my interest to that degree. Now, I know I got into television because there were certain journalists I saw on screen that looked like me and made me feel it was possible. Did you have that? Were there any black ballet dancers or did you, were you aware that it was an, an arena which there were very few black women? Um, I think I really only became aware of that probably when I was around 11 or 12. I think I was quite naive um, and was perhaps in my own little, my own little bubble where it just, it made me happy. Um, And there's something very welcoming about the dance community anyways, in in general, Um, you know, especially when it's recreational. So it just never really like occurred to me. I think I was just so in love with the art form and and then I also think that, um, you know, this is like right before YouTube 
Um, so I just wasn't exposed to much. I also didn't know that it was a possibility to become a professional ballet dancer. I'd never seen an actual ballet production live until I was about, um, I want to say when I was like eight or nine. So I didn't even know that there was really the profession of becoming a ballerina. Um, and I think just from lack of exposure and culture, I thought I was like the only black kid in the world doing ballet, which was kind of silly and stupid, but um, that, I think that's what I thought for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand why. So Johnsy, did dance find you or did you find dance? Um, I, I was dancing way before I was born. <clears throat> I think that my mum, her heartbeat, I think I was jamming to that while I was still, <laughs> still there, you know what I mean? Seriously, because for me, I don't remember not dancing ever, you know? I grew into a family of six um, kids and all of them danced. So I just immediately appeared just, you know, doing the doogie, you know what I mean, already. So, um, yeah, the, the dance was always in my life. Was that the same for you, Sharon? It was a little bit slightly different. I can't really answer that whether who found who because it was in my middle school, which middle schools don't exist anymore. But at the age of nine, I had my first dance lesson and I knew then it was my calling. Um, and that was quite incredible because I knew nothing about it. I literally had my sister who was uh, my example of what dance was about. And she had two years ahead of me doing dance. By the time I got to my first year in, in secondary school, I, uh, I was smitten one lesson and it was for me. I came home and told my parents that that's good to, at 16, I'm going to train to be a professional dancer. And 16 came and I was off. Um, so everything in terms of that, it was almost a, a cacophony of, of ideas, emotions, feelings, expressions that just collided and made it all possible. So yeah, it happened in that one moment. Now, I can only assume for all three of you to get to the stage where you have in your careers, it's taken some resilience, some challenge to overcome, and obviously a phenomenal amount of talent. For you, Precious, what, do you, what would you um, say got you to where you were? What, what was it that kind of helped you to navigate and steer your, steer your way to this level of your career? I think it was just the, the initial passion I had for the art form and my love of dancing. There's kind of, I mean, you know, I think it was when I was 10 years old that I figured out, oh, you can have a career as a ballet dancer and do that as a profession. And from like that moment on, there was, there was just, there was nothing that could possibly happen that was going to stop. Like if I had to walk to ballet lessons because there was no one there to drive me, like I was going to walk to ballet lessons. Like that's just the level of, um, I don't know if you would use the word insanity or or obsession, but I would like to use the word passionate. <laughs> I call that commitment. <laughs> commitment. Um, and I think like, that's also what, um, you know, I think my parents saw that and they were like, okay, well, like there's nothing holding her back. She's obviously going to give this like 100% of her energy and effort. Um, and so I don't think they ever doubted that I would um, find a way to um, make a living or find some form of success down, down this path, whether that was you know, working at a big ballet company or not, whether that was, you know, however you wanted to find success or whatever. I think they were just sort of like, she's obviously working so hard, it's going to pay off in some kind of way. Um, and I think I believe that as well. I mean, it may or may not have a bit, but when did or, or did it ever being a black woman in, a, a, in the ballet world become an issue or a 
a talking point or something that you thought I had to think about? I would say it was probably after like 15. It just kind of never, it just kind of like never came up. I mean, I remember like my cousin once asking me when I was like nine years old or something, she saw a picture of like my dance troupe and she's like, how come you're the only black one? And it just like never crossed my mind. And I was like, I don't know. And, and like, literally I wasn't thinking about anything. You know, you're not, you're a kid, you're a kid, you're nine years old. You kind of don't, you don't really think about stuff so deeply, you know? But then it was when I was around, I would say like 15 or 16, I think when you're kind of getting closer to that age, when you really need to start thinking about what are like my professional prospects? What are my professional possibilities? Um, where could I really see like my career going? Where could I dance? Where could I really have a career based on my physique, my capabilities, all of those things. And then um, when opportunities started to come about to perform on stage, um, that's when I think I started to become a little bit more aware of, oh, okay, like things might be a little bit different for me. Oh, certain things are a little bit, aren't as straightforward for me. Oh, I need to sort, sort my hair out for this. And I would just kind of always just deal with it um, or sort it out on my own. But yeah, I would say it was in like my mid-teens was only really when the conversation started to come up. I remember when I started my career, I remember thinking I would never apply to the BBC because there's no one at the BBC looked like me and I did it privately. But once in there, you realise that it's a, well, you can't change anything from the outside. You have to be in it. And what's been really inspiring about watching you is that you've kind of taken that responsibility. You've made changes albeit because they were personal to you. Do you feel that sense of responsibility? Did you feel, for example, when you demanded to wear brown tights as opposed to pink, that this change was not just for you? Well, okay. I, I didn't like demand to like wear brown tights. I have to be so clear about that because I think people really want to um, Make kind of paint me as this yeah. rebel and as this, um, you know, as like a difficult person, which I think is what really stinks about um, trying to be progressive or even just like have a conversation or bring something up is you're instantly seen as a troublemaker. Um, and that's just like, that's so not the case. I waited until my first promotion when I was going to be doing more soloist work. Um, so when I was going to kind of be lifted out of the court of ballet, when I felt like it was an appropriate time for me to bring up the subject. Um, and like, mind you, brown tights also wasn't something that ever really like crossed my mind as well until um, Prix de Lausanne when I was 18 years old. It didn't cross my mind until I was 18 years old. Like that's literally how, I mean, you could say it's um, perhaps I've been wired, perhaps brainwashed, perhaps naive would be the word. Like how come it never crossed my mind? I don't know. But it was because one of my, one of my ex-teachers was at the ballet competition um, and I did the first round of the competition wearing pink tights and they just came up to me and they were like, um, you should wear brown tights. It will look so much better. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and then it did, and it looked amazing. And I was like, oh, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Um, but yeah, then you join a company and you just kind of go, go with the flow. So when the time was right, I had had a promotion. And so I asked my director for uh, a meeting and we had a conversation. And I, and I actually started the conversation with um, why, why are tights pink? And she didn't have an answer. So then I went on to explain to her, I was like, you know, my colleagues look one way, I look another way, you know, from the outside looking in, I see them, they look so aesthetically pleasing because it's all um, coherent. And then there's me and it's like uh, color blocking. And I was like, what do you think about me wearing 
crowd with tights more often on stage. I've started to do it more in rehearsals because you're allowed to wear what you want in rehearsals in a ballet company. Um, purple tights in rehearsal, you can wear purple tights. You can literally wear kind of whatever you want as long as um, your, your, your physique can be seen kind of thing. And she was like, okay, well, uh, that's a good idea. We'll consider, we'll look at which parts and which costumes it'll work for. So that was in 2017 or so. And so now when you fast forward, like at the Royal Opera House, every show I've seen in the past 18 months, every black dancer has on black tights for every act. And that's the white acts in Swan Lake. That's the white acts in uh, Giselle. They have on uh, brown tights. And I think that's just like huge progress because how it started with at ENB, I would only wear brown tights for certain pieces and certain acts. So like, for example, in Swan Lake, only for act one and three, I would wear brown tights. And then acts two and four, I would wear pink tights. I was like, you know, um, for them, their logic was, oh, okay. So maybe when you're playing a human, you'll wear brown tights. But if you're playing a fictional, you know, okay, it's a swan, everyone's wearing white. We're going to go with the pink. We're going to go with like the white pink tights or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And then I was, Eventually it was slow, but again, these are the sorts of things that they almost don't matter or make any sense to um, people that don't look like me. And I had to spend so much time trying to get my Caucasian colleagues and friends to understand my perspective because they literally did not understand it. They were like, I don't think the pink tights look weird on you. And having to try to convince people of the lens that I see the world through was, um, it was kind of tiring because it also made me doubt whether or not I was, um, whether or not it was worth it and whether or not like I was doing the right thing, you know? It was a case of each one teach one, isn't it? Yeah. So Jonesy, um, is it all about the timing for you in terms of um, breaking convention? It's at such a level now, it's incredible that you're bringing the best of hip hop talent from all around the world to this little London, well, it's not little, again, this space in Islington, this renowned world-class stage, but I can't imagine that was easy. It, it, it starts before that. So for me, um, I feel that coming from an activist environment, um, my parents were activists, um, and I remember a book about Muhammad Ali that was just left in my room for some reason, I don't know why, but it greatly influenced me um, <clears throat> in relation to why are we here, you know? And I love dance, I grew up with dance, but I didn't grow up with the dance apartheid that I discovered when I started actually looking at this as a career. So for me, hip hop dance is just a, a dance style. And then when I started looking at, um, you know, doing dance class and stuff, I realized that there was a very different approach to what dance is. And I started to realize that there was a strata you know, um, when people talked about high art, people would refer to classical ballet and contemporary dance. And I didn't see what I was doing at the time as being in this world. So then it made me think, okay, well, if that's high, is what I'm doing low? If we're using this type of language, it begs the question, do you know what I mean? So um, I'll never forget, I tell this story often, um, I'll never forget being at Lewisham College um, in 1988 and it was a dance foundation course 
and the plan being to go on to higher education. I ended up going to London Contemporary Dance School, which was absolutely amazing. But the question that I asked when we were studying um, jazz at the time, I asked, are we going to learn anything about hip hop? And I was told by my theory, dance theory teacher at the time, no, because we want to look at um, preparing you for the marketplace. And to be fair, the marketplace at the time, you didn't see that much hip hop, particularly in the theatre. So at that point, I said, things have to change, you know. So my constant drive has been looking at different dance forms and maybe dance forms that don't have a history of the court dances of Louis XVI, you know. And maybe we need to look at some other roots of where dance comes from. So that's been my journey consistently, looking at, um, you know, reggae, dance, Jamaican dance forms, looking all over the world of, of where dance exists and this language of dance and how it, it needs to be much more diversified. So Breaking Convention ultimately came out of that looking at this dance form that's shared by the whole world everybody has access to this dance style and you mentioned earlier each one teach one this is one of the fundamental things about hip-hop it's not enshrined by an institution do you know what I mean so access to this dance form is much more I guess peer-to-peer um, and the development of hip hop has created these huge events that are happening around the world, um, huge battle events. And I guess breaking convention is part of that, even though battling isn't central to it. But it's a way in which the whole of society can now engage um, equally, I suppose. And I think that's what's been revelatory about constantly turning up for breaking convention it's just how open and diverse the audiences are the fact is everyone assumes that hip-hop is urban but the audience is so eclectic well the audience is urban because I think urban is a term that is kind of um is a euphemism for black yeah you know what I mean but but we're all black if we're gonna go there you know what I mean <laughs> we're all into this music we're all into this culture do you know what I mean? And I think that the roots of it are clearly from an African perspective. Do you know what I mean? An African-American perspective. But isn't most art forms that becomes really popular? Do you know what I mean? If you look at the West End, you'll see lots of jazz dance there. You know what I mean? And increasingly lots of hip hop. So for me, I think that we need to look at what dance is in the world today. And there's not one type. Now, Sharon, your, your, part of your early career was as the first female dancer in Phoenix Dance Theatre. Tell me about that experience. And do you feel it's important that dance groups such as Phoenix, and I remember when I saw, first saw Alvin Ailey, and a couple of weeks ago I saw Ballet Black. What role do you think Black dance groups serve? It's quite incredible, actually, because I think, like Precious, there was a lot of, of unexplained happenings that just happened. Um, I think there was some naivety around the early beginnings of, of who and how in terms of the seeing the black body on stage and a lot of acceptance as to just exactly uh, what it was that we were delivering and why it was happening. The question that Josie asked is, what's the purpose? I don't always believe that we knew that at the early days. Um, and being one of four, it was 
it was a novelty to a lot of people. And actually it wasn't until we were on the inside that we understood the importance of who we were and how we actually are able to influence. Uh, I also went to a contemporary dance school to train and it was a phenomenal experience. And I don't really remember having the, the kind of politicized um, conversations around who I am as an artist, but getting into Phoenix, it suddenly became so visible and we were being politicized. So it was a very different way of delivering. And actually, you know, it was a narrow by comparison, you know, we didn't, we trained in classical ballet, but we didn't deliver it as on stage. We did some hip hop, we did some jazz, we did a bit of Tai Chi, we did all of the art forms, but contemporary was our narrative form that we were able to tell our stories. But we were held on a pedestal. We really were because we, there was nothing else like that. And to see, 10 black bodies on stage being dynamic, being as equal to any of the other companies in the UK, not necessarily getting the same kind of credit, but we, we kind of, we matched what was happening. And it was a phenomenal experience because it did take us around the world, which I don't know if, you know, how I would have done that otherwise, whether my career without Phoenix would have actually really helped me to expand that visibility and to be that visible. So we were, yeah, we, we talk about it often as the first females entering that space that was held by black men, which we never dreamt was ever going to be possible, let alone see six black men in the first instance. So we were, yeah, they were breaking the mold. And I, I feel that even today, we, we are losing that. It's becoming more and more diluted. We are losing that kind of those power moments of seeing something so powerful um, because it's been replicated or tried to be replicated in so many ways, but it is actually diluting the potency of black visibility and black engagement and black narrative. So there is, yeah, there's, there's something that we're beginning to, we have to hold on to. And is that significance of, of having these groups and you as dancers important for you as well as for the audiences? Because these shows are always packed out. I've not been to one dance show for one black dance company that hasn't been sold out or, or packed out. I think holding that space becomes imperative. It becomes imperative to our narrative of British culture. It becomes imperative in terms of the way that we cross the Atlantic in terms of understanding. Um, a lot of our influences at the time, I have to say, came from America. So we were influenced by Alvin Ailey and Harlem and uh, B.B. Miller and various other companies. And the National Dance Theatre of Jamaica, although they were, were quite in the, in, the, in the headlights in the same way, but we had connections with them because they were our role models. And I guess it's not okay to sit in the 21st century and say that everyone has the same equal parts in what we do, because then you don't really understand the deficit that we're trying to make up with some of the work that we've been doing, some of the voices that are actually on the platforms and some of the celebrations of what we've contributed to British society and to British culture. We will lose that if we don't really kind of hold on to what it is that we're able to offer. In terms of celebrating, uh, Precious, how much did having the likes of Alvin Ailey Dance Company and seeing someone like Misty Copeland at um, Escalate and then you yourself winning awards, what did that mean for you as a dancer in this space? Um, so the celebratory side of seeing representation and Black representation in dance is, one, it's, um, I think it's, I think they're big symbols of, visibility and progress. Um, however, I have to say what I see, the way I see like Dance Theater of Harlem and Alvin Ailey versus 
Misty Copeland, they're almost like two different things because Misty Copeland is someone who's penetrating a very white space, which is really important. And that's almost, I almost see that as like different work because she's, I don't know, it's like she's penetrating these spaces um, and she's causing a lot of influence on this like, um, perhaps, in the, I don't know if you want to use the word like in this mainstream space or in this white space or whatever, but she's causing a lot of influence. And I think that there's a hugely important role to play in um, kind of like occupying that space because I think it, it causes a lot of influence. But then on the other hand, of course, out of necessity, we have um, our black dance companies that are, are kind of there. I mean, at least they started out as being there to really serve the black community and to like enrich our black communities and to give culture back to our people um, so that we could feel seen and represented and all of that. Um, and now, you know, and then it expands to a place where it's also educating a wider spectrum of people and everything. Um, but it all just plays a role in representation and visibility, which just influences the population in a positive way and helps us all to be able to relate to each other, um, whether we're the same or whether we're different. I think it, it helps to, um, to just educate the population and to expand all of our minds to feel as though we can relate to one another. Um, there was a there was a um, exhibition, and I think it was in twenty fourteen in Liverpool. I think it was at Liverpool Slave Museum, looking at the history of black dance, and it was absolutely fascinating. There's so much to learn, and there were names I had never ever heard of. And I know I've kind of picked on this in, in previous conversations with you, John Z, about whether and with other um, practitioners in the space, whether you can define what is black dance. I know you have a particular view on this. You want to share with us. I'd love to. Um, so I think it's, it's two things, yeah? One, it's from a cultural perspective. What, have the, what has the African diaspora offered in relation to dance language, yeah? And there's a lot of it. There's so much, you know? Um, and we can look at it from a historical perspective. We can look at it from a migratory perspective, how African people, um, as a result of the slave trade, just migration anyway, we've brought culture to different parts of the world, yeah? So I think that Black dance is, one, the dance that comes from the culture of Black people, but also, and this is very important, it's just dancing. If you're black and you're dancing anything, that's black dance. I don't think that's hard to get your head around personally, but hey, I'd love to know what you guys think. All right, Sharon, what do you think? I disagree with that, Josie. I honestly can't because I think for the very early days, I think some of the criticisms that we were, that kind of was imposed on us was that we weren't doing traditional dance. But then I had no connections with traditional dance. I had contemporary dance. That was what I was brought up to express and to experience. And actually over the years, you begin to understand that actually the African diaspora is so broad that you can do anything. And, I, and it, even being in my skin as a black woman, then yeah, that's a black, that's black dance for me. So, but you can sometimes get drawn into the, the channels that don't necessarily belong to you when you're trying to defend an argument around what is black dance. And you're often kind of led into spaces that you end up with the, the political arguments about what you know money is given for black dance, but you're not a black dance company, or it is a black dance company. And 
you're bouncing around it for years and years. There is no one answer other than if you look like us, you're doing black dance. Is that so, your perspective, Precious? Because obviously you're doing ballet in a, in a mainstream ballet company and you're a black dancer. So what's your, your argument here? Or what, what's your opinion on what's said? Oh gosh, it's really hard to pin it down based off of um, what both you, John Z and Sharon have made like really interesting points. Um, however, I, I mean, because then someone can argue that me putting on pink tights in the first place is like, I don't know, reverse racism or something. I don't know. Like there's so many like insane things that could be said, which is why I would rather dispel all the complexity and the layers of these arguments and just, cause you know, people can say, Oh, it's cultural appropriation. It's this, it's that, it's the other. And it's like, no, actually this is like a seriously globalized world. Like everything is everyone's. And unless we kind of view things that way, um, you know, and if we're so possessive over things or that's where um, the discriminatory and the, that's where those attitudes come from when we're not all just welcoming each other into each other's spaces and saying, oh, it's just like, it's all fusion. We're all, it's all mixed anyways, you know? Um, we're, we're all here to like, to share and to give and to learn from each other with each other, which is maybe it's my crazy hippie dippy naive perspective or whatever. But I think that's, um, that's just how I like to see things is just, just dance. <laughs> it is so hugely complex. As I was just thinking, like coming up at Sadler's Wells is, is um, Jermaine Cogney, who's doing Pina Bausch. So is that because her company's all black, make that black dance, but it's a white choreographer. It is a very complex issue. Isn't it? I actually, um, I actually wrote about this for um, Sadler's Wells. They had a guest selects digital um, stage. And I included that uh, rendition of Pina Bausch's choreography with the all African cast. And I said, um, actually, typically, I, I always preach about how I think typecasting is, is wrong. But actually, in this case, using the all African cast on this beach in Senegal was incredibly powerful. Um, because they, they're all connected in this way that, um, for example, when I did the chosen one with English National Ballet on Sather's Wall stage, there was something very um, kind of like uh, artificially manufactured about creating the spiritual um, experience, which is what Pina Bausch was trying to do back when she first produced this. But you're literally taking a stage in the middle of London or Paris where it was first done, covering it with dirt and doing this like spiritual sacrificial dance. And it's actually kind of weird when you think about it. Um, it's, it's super obscure and it actually almost makes more sense the way that it was staged on the all black cast on an actual beach that naturally has earth. Like that's really doing, um, I think that's really depicting what Pina Bausch was trying to do actually in a more authentic and real way um, than trying to like manufacture it in the middle of a city for like white audiences, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, you could. That's I guess that's what art is there to do, anyways, is to to get us all thinking, because um, you could break it apart any which way. And we certainly are thinking here. And John, do you? Yeah, I, I was just thinking um, of the of the audiences. Do you know what I mean? Because I think what's happened um, is that there's a divide. Do you know what I mean? And there's enough black people that don't even look at going to the theatre because generally particularly in dance theatre, generally there's not that much that's targeted for that community. I think that particularly in London, the theatre 
scene has definitely advanced in relation to that, where there's black audiences that are saying, I see myself, so therefore I want to go and check it out. Um, and I think that for a long time, and particularly as I was studying dance, I just didn't see myself. I just want to big up Phoenix right now, because if it was not for Phoenix coming to my school when I was 13 years old, I wouldn't be here now. Do you know what I mean? It was them directly that made me realise that I can be part of this world as well. So I really feel strongly about making sure we're still doing that for the younger generation. That must be incredibly powerful for you to hear, Sharon. But what's exciting is that you're now in a leadership role where you can make a difference and you can initiate change. How excited and, and, and determined are you with this new position? How do you feel about being a principal? I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think if you were to ask me many moons ago whether or not I would be in this place, I never saw it. Um, because again, I haven't seen anyone that's doing this leadership role. But I understand the power that I have in the same way as being the AD for Phoenix. I think there's something about understanding the power but, and making room for others. It's a hard space to be in um, because the wheel turns so slowly. And by the time you've managed to make things happen without really breaking the ship, without breaking the, you know, the entirety of the organization in order to make change, you've got to steer very, clearly, uh, very carefully. And, you know, I, I kind of feel as though very early on, I was, I was gifted with an ability to teach and to educate and to inform and to influence. So I, I feel that, that my gift right now is coming to the fore in terms of a full circle, having experienced a, a, being a dancer, having been through the training process, having supported the training process. And now we're stepping into a space where you're actually really trying to keep your elbows wide because the political agenda, the agenda of government, society, and all of those things, that looks at a young person and says, you're not meant to do this, or this isn't for you, has to be part of my, my, my kind of my drive. And I know that I, I'm sometimes known as a maverick in terms of what I, I want to do, but behind the scenes, there is that real challenge of trying to dig away at that change, which actually becomes critical to the survival of who we are as artists, of who we are as people, and how we share that responsibility within society that says dance, or art per se is for you. So it's, uh, I do love my role and I'm only two years into it. And I say only, cause it only feels like I've just got going. Um, so I'm hoping that what I'm able to do and able to achieve begins to resonate and looks very different to what it was two years ago. I love you guys, not just because of what you do, but what you say, and this could go on forever. What I'd love to do now is that this part of the program we call Pass the Baton, where you can tell me about someone that has inspired you. And it could be somebody from the past or somebody that you feel is worth looking out for currently that has really inspired you so we can share with the audience and they can go and do a deep dive and discover them themselves. So Precious, can I start with you? Who would you like to pass your baton on to? There's two people that come to mind. Um... Kevin Thomas, he's um, he's the director of collective or sorry, collage dance collective in Memphis, Tennessee, and I think that what he has done uh, um, is really significant. Um, he his idea was essentially to replicate dance theater of Harlem, but in kind of in the South, in America, and really start a a black dance organization that's kind of expanded into a huge pillar within the community and um, him and his partner like have managed to 
build this on their own. And I just wish like more people knew about it. Cause I think that, um, I think it just takes like so much courage to do what he's done and, and then to like be successful with it as well. Um, I think it's just like really, really powerful, um, and significant. Um, and then the other person that comes to mind is, uh, Erica Lal. She's also a ballet dancer. She's, she's the dancer at, um, American Ballet Theater, but, um, I recently met her and I just thought her, um, the way with which she kind of like goes through life, I thought was really, really special because it can be really, she's also a black dancer in a, in a, in a white belly company. Um, but she just didn't seem uh, as tightly wound as everybody I know who uh, just works for a ballet company period. Um, but yeah, like let alone a dancer, let alone like a black dancer in those spaces. Um, which was just like really refreshing. And it just, I have so much respect for her because I think that um, sometimes it can all just get really, really serious and really, really heavy. And it's just kind of like, oh my God, it doesn't have to be. You can actually just like- Enjoy. Try to have, yeah, you can actually just like enjoy it. And that'll actually just like influence people on its own. And people will just want to like have more of us around and more of us in these spaces, you know? And I, so I just really loved her, um, her energy and her perspective. And I think- she's one to look out for as well. Yeah, two amazing people to check out. John, do you have your choices? Um, I've only got one off the top of my head, to be honest with you. Um, Ivan Blackstock. Um, he's someone who I've been working with for quite a bit. Um, he did um, his company, Bird Gang, um, who he's, he's left over the last couple of years, but... Um, he started a company called Bird Gang and they performed their first ever show at Breaking Convention in 2006. But he's he's been really pushing his work. He's been doing film um, and he did an amazing show called Trap Lord, um, which was a, a, a Sadler's Wells um, helped produce it and also the Manchester International Festival. But it was performed at 180 The Strand in a very... Um, I guess a bespoke space for his work. Um, and what I really love about him is his, his resilience and his determination and his very unique vision of hip hop theatre. It, it goes in, I just want to say, and it's very challenging, you know what I mean? But for me, some of the artists that I've loved over the years, people like Michael Clark, who, who really kind of push the boat out um i think that that's what ivan is doing today for the for the 2020s do you know what i mean Please look out for him. sharon who's your batting going to i am um, i'm gonna pitch you've already mentioned one them um, so i'm gonna pitch a couple of your spaces there um jonesy but it's interesting because a lot of the people I admire for very different reasons, and Sharon Ray, who's over in America, we lost Leonora Stapleton earlier this year, who were all pioneers. You know, Paulette Brooks, who's got serendipity, who's bringing us a, a new platform for visual stimulus in terms of culture. And Kuli Tiara, who's at the current moment, she's the Leeds 2023 Creative Director. It's just, I mean, she was, she saw Phoenix back in the day. And it's just one of those things where you know that one drop has managed to make many things happen. And I think at this moment in time, there's two people that I would love to shout out to. And one is Alethea Antonia, who is a young PhD student right now, who's creating work from a, a place of, of self. And I just think she's, she's gonna make marks and she is making marks. 
And the other one is the current rehearsal director for Phoenix Dance Theatre, who I think has developed a backbone of steel and, you know, and, and ambition. And I just think whilst they are relatively young in these positions, people like us are able to really give them the support, the visibility and the strength. So I'm going to hand over those two buttons to Jerome Bernard and Anitha Antonia. Thank you all. Well, we've come to the end. So I want to say a huge thank you to our creative, constructive and celebratory conversations led by you guys. You've been absolutely brilliant. We end the programme with a specially commissioned spoken word contribution by flow poet, Mr. I Am Jones. Enjoy everyone and do join us again for Kiss My Black Side. Because it ain't illegal yet. Because I can't forget the only fight that I have left. And for all they stealing and copping and studying and watching is the one code these zombies can't crack. The one system they can't hack. I have a pact with God. We have a pact with God. An unbreakable bond. An inalienable right. Like tonight, right up under the moonlights. Right under the sights of heaven. Right above the fires of hell. This voodoo is where the truth happens. It's where the truth snaps in. You see these hands? The way they twisting and jerking on purpose with purpose. I bite my lip and wind my waist like it's hurting, but I can't stop. Objects moving with the most high are holier than they appear, and I smell fear. You see the way the earth moves under these feet. Styles and drops and pops and heartbeats and heartbeats to a hundred drums. You ever seen a black boy run? Bouncing arms backwards and breaking them into wings. You ever heard a black girl sing? Next time, listen carefully and closely. Receiving all praise, all praise as I'm pop locking, trying to be worthy of their gaze. Trying to be me as I was made. Trying my best to be unafraid because it ain't illegal. Yet... Because I can't forget the only fight that I have left and for all they stealing their cop and studying watches to one cold these hobbies can't crack. Kiss My Black Side is a Sadler's Wells production.